Hello and welcome to The Lowdown, an insider's look at stories touching our lives here on Cape Cod and beyond. My name is Ira Wood, and you're listening to us on WOMR 92.1 FM Provincetown, WFMR 91.3 FM Orleans, and streaming worldwide on WOMR.org. It's estimated that one in 250 pregnancies result in having identical twins. That's a pretty small percentage, a little less than half of 1%. And yet the idea of identical twins looms large in our imaginations. When we meet them, we're somewhat awestruck for one thing. And for another, they give rise to a lot of impertinent questions. Which is which? Who's older? Do your parents get you mixed up? Twins simply fall outside the human norm. And throughout history, They've been used in literature, science, myth, art, entertainment, advertising, and pop culture to represent everything from freaks to perfect soulmates to hard determinism, at the same time posing philosophical questions about and reflecting our own identities and human connections. My guest today is Helena de Brace. She's a philosophy professor at Wellesley College, a widely published essayist, and of course, a twin. Today we'll be talking about her new book, How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Helena DeBrace, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thanks for having me on the show, Eric. It's great to be with you. So I know that you and your sister Julia, like most identical twins, have had to put up with all kinds of nosy questions all your lives. Who's the introvert? Who's the extrovert? Who's the athlete? Who's the brain? Why do people do this? Why do they need to differentiate, or as you label it, binarize twins? Well, I think part of it is that it's just really difficult to tell identical twins apart, (laughs) to state the obvious. So sometimes this binarizing move is a way of just trying to pin them down. We're slippery creatures with these sort of trickster figures. Uh, So it's useful to invent a binary or locate a binary and stick one twin on either end of it just to keep track of us. (laughs) So that's part of it, I think. I also think that uh, there are twins are used in myths, popular culture, Uh, novels and films to represent binaries. So there'll often be a story that has one good twin and one evil twin. You know, it's a common trope. Uh, So we sometimes import those, those twin characters or roles onto actual twins. And there's also the idea of people really needing to identify others in order to feel comfortable with their kind of humanness, the fact that we can't sort of be a cooperating society unless we know who everybody is. Could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So if you think about it, your whole social life and your ethical life depends on reliable identity detection, right? If you don't know who the person in front of you is, then you can't generalize from their past behavior. You can't predict what they'll do. You can't trust any promises they might make because you can't be sure if the person you're seeing now is the same person you see a little further down the track. So we do need to be able to identify each other. I think twins fascinate and sort of disturb us, partly because in that case, we really can't be totally sure that we know what we've got in front of us. (laughs) Um, So it's a basic problem. And twins um, can use that for their own purposes sometimes. Um, there, there is no, but switching. <laughs> there, there, there's no pic, there's a picture of you 
in in your book, but there's no picture of <laughs> Julia, um, which I assume, of course, that well, that you were protecting her privacy. Although if she looks like you, you're not protecting too much. <laughs> but but do do how much alike did the two of you really look? We were actually very alike as children. We never did that thing where you switch classrooms or, you know, friends or partners. We didn't think we looked alike enough to pull it off. But looking back at the photos now, it's like, oh, what a wasted opportunity. We could definitely have done that. <laughs> so we looked very alike as kids. So I'm um, going to ask you a really stupid question. You go I'm gonna for do, it. I'm going exa- <laughs> to do exactly what you hate people doing. Did your parents <laughs> ever have any trouble differentiating between the two of you? They said that they could tell very early on um, that I was, again, to go back to this binarizing habit, that I was the quiet one and my sister was the loud one. They, They claim they could identify that as soon as we popped out. I don't know if that's a myth that got developed over time, but that's what they think. Our energies were different, they say. So even from the back, they never they never came up to either one of you and neither did you ever did you again, stupid questions. And I promise to get back to philosophy. (laughs) But were you ever were you ever either of you punished for something the other did? No, it never happened. I, I don't find these questions annoying. I have had them a lot, I'll admit, in my life. But I'm also fascinated by twins. When I run into them in a cafe or, you know, in a class, um, I'm always kind of doing the same things to them that people always did to me. There's just something really interesting about this kind of duplicated uh, physical likeness in front of you. My sister and I actually had this moment where we, we we freaked ourselves out. We were both in adjacent bathroom stalls and we opened them at the same time. We didn't know the other person was in there. And we saw our reflections, you know, next to each other in the mirror and we screamed, you know, (laughs) so twins are not immune to these reactions themselves. You tell us that twins sometimes even binarize themselves, especially when you were young and you were eager to work out which one you were. Can you explain why, why twins have, why you say that twins have special reasons to binarize themselves? Yeah. I think part of it um, is that you know everyone wants to have a sense of of themselves as being special, as having some sort of role to play, a meaningful place in the universe. Um, so I think, given that twins are so similar along so many dimensions, it's very tempting to try and um, give yourself a special, well-defined, maybe quite starkly defined um, identity or role. Um, it allows you to develop your own identity very clearly. Um, in relation to someone else. And it gives you a kind of sense of where your own resources and powers lie. So this book is a kind of cute repetition of what my sister and I got up to when we were young. I would write a novel or a short story and she would illustrate it. So she's done illustrations for this book. Um, So I was identified as the writer and her as the illustrator. And having that contrast meant that we were able to feel more secure in our own uh, sense of self. So there's a kind of use of it as a way to pin down uh, who we each were. One of the joys of your book is that you not only um, talk about twins, but how thinking about twins makes singletons, which I am a singleton and um, 99% of people out there listening are singletons. Before I finish the question, where in the world did you come up with the term singletons? I can't find it in the dictionary. Did it come from Alice in Wonderland and something? I was wondering. 
Hey, no, no, I'm not sure. It's quite common in writing about twins. Um, but yeah, the average person hasn't come across it before. It's a little too close to simpleton. Yeah, I think so for I kept many non simpleton. <laughs> It's not meant to have that connotation, just to be clear. <laughs> but did you and Julia sometimes look at um, at the rest of the world people as strange, especially in the way that they viewed you as as different? Yeah, um, I think usually it's twins who are feeling unusual since we are so rare. But when twins hang out with other twins there's a sense that we you've got this sort of deep connection to these people you may not know them well but you you know that you've been through a similar experience from a young age so when I'm hanging out with fellow twins I'll see the singletons as being the odd ones but the main experience for twins is feeling that you're in the minority uh, you're a little freakish people have odd reactions to you they tend to objectify you so I talk in the book about the ways that twins are objectified um, like women are, not with the same oppressive effects. Obviously, twins aren't an oppressed group. Um, but there's similar focuses on our physical features as opposed to our internal features, the sense that we're somehow interchangeable. So there's interesting parallels there too. Um, yeah, uh, the the reactions of singletons are something twins have to deal with from day one. Did you and Julia have like secret signs, like like non-verbal looks that you gave each other when you were getting the business from Singletons? <laughs> I think we did. Yes, I think we did. We don't. Julia uh, thinks that we communicate telepathically, and I've never believed that. I do think that we communicate with very subtle kind of visual and physical um, gestures that others might not pick up just because we know each other so well. What, you tell us that you were the writer and Julia was the illustrator, just to, to, to pick up on one binary difference between you two. Were you two ever competitive? Did you fight over stuff? There was one instance where we both had a crush on the same guy. This is one of those, you know, very, <laughs> very common narratives about twins, especially female twins, that they're fighting over a man. And usually one of them ends up killing the other one in an act of jealousy. But that didn't happen. No one killed anyone. But we did have a kind of crush on the same guy. So we fought over him briefly. <laughs> um, but we were not that competitive. Looking back, we were, we had very, very similar academic outcomes at school down to the last digit when you added it up all our scores on the national exams. So we were always just very close um, in our achievements. And I think that we were trying not to um, be worse than each other. We didn't want to be better than each other, but um, we were probably adjusting, mutually adjusting our efforts so that we came out the same. <laughs> so it's kind of undercover competition, I guess. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about what it means to be born a twin and how society views those lucky enough to come from a fertilized egg that splits in two. My guest is Wellesley College professor Helena DeBrace. Her new book is How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Helena, a number of behaviors sometimes attributed to twins, as we talked about, is mind reading or ESP, basically perceiving each other's thoughts. This is erroneous, as you say, but singletons can do it perfectly well, you tell us. Singletons who are very close, like people who've lived together for a long time, and it's called socially extended cognition. I had never heard that term before. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, um, 
I talk in the book about the way that just as twins are binarized, they're just sort of very distinct and opposite. They're also treated often uh, as being essentially the same person. So it's the opposite move. Uh, there's a sense that twins are somehow less than two people. They have a merged self. Um, and I, I was initially skeptical about that idea. But as I wrote the book, I started thinking about the various ways in which twins can share personhood and can function as a single person. So this is one way. Um they can share a mind. I think twins are an especially vivid instance of this, but you see it in other close couples too. Uh, so there are these like, interesting studies in psychology um, of couples, kind of, they're almost Googling each other when they're talking. They can't remember something, so they'll kind of cross-cue each other. Do you remember we went to Vienna and what was that restaurant? Oh, yeah, it was around the corner from, you know, they're kind of using each other's minds as repositories of information and kind of going back and forth um, in that way. They can remember via each other, can think jointly. Uh, so you see this across the board, but twins who know each other so well uh, are especially good at it. So you can see one twin's mind as being in some sense an extension of the others. And you, that's one non-mystical way where I think twins really can't share a self. Yeah. Um, do you ever get tired of hearing Julia tell the same story? I know a lot of married people do. <laughs> It's a little bit like being married from the very first moment of conception. So I don't live in the same country as her anymore, so I've got a little bit of distance. I don't have to listen to her too much. <laughs> it, it must be hard, but you, you talk in the book about how hard it, it was to separate sometimes. Can, can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, well, I just talked about how twins can share a mind. I think they can also share agency. They can act jointly. Um, and they can have a shared identity. So that's the key one here. If you're very regularly sharing a mind with and acting together with someone um, who you're very close to, that person can feel like they're an extension of your own identity. And I've had that with my twin. I'm very close to Julia. Um, many twins have this experience. So it's not really just a metaphor to say that they become a part of you. They're a big part of, of who you feel you are. So, yeah, it was really tough when I left to go to graduate school um, and leave Julia behind. Um, but in a way, because we're so close, I felt that living in another country hasn't changed our relationship at all. Um, I feel as if she's around all the time in a sense. It's, it can't help but sound sappy when saying this, but I do feel that um, she's kind of ever present with me. Um, so the distance physically doesn't seem to matter very much. Do you do you talk a lot? How how often on average, how how often now of course it's very, very easy over Zoom, et cetera. But how often do you actually talk? Well, you know, we're both professors. Uh, she has a kid, both very busy. So probably we don't talk more than once a week, but she leaves me very long voice memos. You know, it's the new <laughs> Like these very long voice memos on other days of the week. <laughs> and I also try and spend a couple of months a year down in New Zealand uh, with her and the rest of my family. One of the ideals of Western society, which you talk about in the book, is the able-bodied man, the rugged individual. Twins are sometimes considered so enmeshed in each other's lives that each one individually is viewed as a lesser person. Um, because they're not one whole individual person. But you found that as a woman, as someone who talks about her having a disability, and of course, as a twin, that all that um, has become, that, that 
notion of being a rugged individual is suspect. So talk about how twins disturb us because they model the breaching of those laws of individuality in Western culture. Yeah, so uh, there is this long-standing ideal. It's hard to locate when exactly it started, but sometime around the Industrial Revolution, development of capitalism, the Romantic movement, um, is that this ideal in European culture of the ideal human life as being uh, one led by an individual who's physically and emotionally and mentally discreet or it's separate from others. The, I, the images of a man who's pursuing his own aims, you know, interacting with others, here and there. Basically, basically every he, male movie star who's ever been in, in <laughs> exactly. any movie ever. <laughs> I know. We, everyone knows what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and the sense is that that's the healthiest way to live. It's also the most kind of noble and moral way to live, right? What's wrong is to become very enmeshed in other people, be overly dependent, not be living your own life. Um, so uh, th- there's a sense that mutuality, social connection, somehow undermines your dignity um, and your um, kind of authority. Um, so that, you know, our commitment to that ideal has lessened, I think, over the past, uh, you know, past century. People have raised objections to it, but I think it still has a hold on us. Um, and, you know, when twins are seen in adulthood, especially is still being very, very closely connected to each other, centering their lives on each other, um, and displaying all these forms of kind of mutual enmeshment, people get very antsy. You know, it's seen as pathological. And I think that's an ideological reaction. People are always saying, oh, twins need to individuate. You need to develop your own personalities and lives. And on the one hand, sure. But I think we have a really low degree of tolerance for ongoing closeness um, that doesn't fit that model. So twins kind of reveal to us at the degree of our attachment to that ideal, even if we claim to be over it. You talk a lot about movies in the book. Do you have a favorite movie in which there are twins? <laughs> I've always loved The Parent Trap. I'm talking about the 1961 version with Hayley Mills, not the I Lindsay Lohan one. I was thinking about that. And, but they're, they're, <laughs> they're, are they sisters or cousins? I, I, I forget. Yeah, they're, no, they're twins. Okay. They get separated at birth. They get divided up in the divorce. So one parent stays in Boston um, with Sharon. So the mother and Sharon are in Boston and the dad and Susan go over to California. So there's this East Coast, West Coast binary. Um, The one in California is this kind of rambunctious, feisty cowgirl (laughs) on a ranch. And the one in Boston is this uptight, prissy, you know, kind of waspy uh, girl. And they meet at summer camp in Maine. They realize they're twins and they try and get their parents back together. I loved that movie. It's an instance of this kind of binarization I was talking about, but I loved it when I was a kid. (laughs) Okay, so I have to ask you, did Julia love it too? She loved it. She identified with the feisty Californian. I was Sharon over here in Boston. What do you know? I moved to Boston. I've lived here for 20 years. So (laughs) I predicted our future life, maybe. (laughs) If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Lowdown with Ira Wood on WOMR. Today we're talking about what it means to be born a twin. And my guest is Wellesley College professor Helena DeBrace. Her new book is How to Be Multiple, The Philosophy of Twins. Helena, you wrote that when you talk about your relationship with Julia, you talk about yourself speaking in phrases sapped of force by centuries of overuse by singleton romantics. It feels like she's always there for me. We can tell each other everything, et cetera, et cetera. So what is it like 
when one or both of you have serious relationships? Are there issues? Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Um, People often assume that when a romantic partner comes along, it's going to be a massive crisis um, for the twins. Uh, So the teenage years, everyone's having crushes, they'll end up fighting over the same person, or one twin will just become very involved with another person and kind of leave the single twin behind. (laughs) I'm sure that happens. Don't want to speak for all twins here. I'm sure that often is a problem. Um, For my sister and I, it wasn't so much. I never really felt like I was under threat from uh, Julia had romantic partners before I did. And I never really saw them as a big threat. I thought she's, you know, she's mine. I'm not going to lose her, which turned out to be true. <laughs> but I do think the idea that the um, the arrival of a romantic partner will cause a crisis in a twinship is uh, it's it's a result of us really idealizing this one form of adult relationship uh, we're supposed to you know focus our lives on one single enduring sexual relationship and all our other prior connections need to kind of give way when that, that thing arrives part of what it wanted to do in the book is say that you know, we should be a bit more flexible here about the kinds of relationships that you might send to your life on um so I think that worry is you know, kind of, in a way, buttressed by a problematic ideal of what human connection should look like. Yeah, but truthfully, don't you look at any partner she has and really say you'll never be as close to her as I am? <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> A funny thing is that she tends to date people who are kind of similar to me, but I also tend to date people who are similar to me. I don't know what that says about me, Um, but she's (laughs) continued to, in a way, you might say, find a a, a romantic replacement for me, and I haven't done that so much. You tell us that an interesting feature of the pathological vision of twinhood is that it lines up with the picture straight culture paints of queer romantic relationships. You even write, twins are kind of gay. So what's involved here? (laughs) Yeah, when people first hear me saying that, they're like, what? (laughs) What is she saying? It sounds implausible. But I really think there is something there. Um, So uh, you often find the same kinds of narrative Uh, tropes and stories about queer couples as you do about twins. So until recently, anyway, most stories about gay couples have ended in some kind of meltdown, often in the death of one or both um, partners. And there's a sense of kind of uh, mental dysfunction, sexual deviance, obviously, from the mainstream point of view, immaturity, narcissism, over-involvement. All of those, um, those points also come up in stories about twins frequently. Uh, so there's this question arises, why is it that twins are treated in the same way um, that gay couples are in stories? Also, of course, you know, there's a sense many people have that gay couples are somehow more similar than straight couples are, as if the, the simple fact of sharing a gender suggests they're more similar in other ways too. Uh, and, you know, twins are very similar. So there's some kind of association, I think, floating around uh, between twins and gay couples and similarity that's explaining it. So a half-hour talk show is certainly the wrong place to start a debate about free will. But (laughs) I have to ask you how you explain all those studies of twins separated at birth who were found decades later to have remarkable similarities. In the book, you talk about the Jim twins— Um, which I had never heard about before. I wonder if you can 
tell us about the Jim twins who who were discovered in in a series of experiments by a professor Bouchard, if I remember. And and what might that tell us about n- nature versus nurture? Yeah, there was this very um, famous uh, research study done in Minnesota in the 80s and 90s, I think, called the Minnesota Study of Twins Raised Apart. So uh, Dr. Bouchard went around looking for uh, twins separated at birth, reunited them later on in life, um, and did a bunch of tests on them and questionnaires checking about how their lives had gone since the separation. And he found some really striking similarities the gym twins are the most <laughs> the most striking probably so they were separated at a very young age they both married someone called linda and then someone called betty they named their son single son james allen and their dog toy uh, they both <laughs> vacation at the same beach in florida they both drove the same kind of chevy on weekends they do woodwork in their garages they had some strange little personal tics, were very unusual. Um, and their brainwave tests, their personality tests came out as identical. They were 180 pounds exactly. You know, they're 39 at this point. So they were extremely similar in many ways. Um, and this is the kind of story that really freaks people out. Yeah, I'm totally <laughs> freaked out here. <laughs> so, you know, they, they are identical twins, so they had identical genes. And so a natural reaction is to say, well, their genes are explaining these similarities, which suggests that our biological <laughs> features are really driving all of our actions down to, you know, what we name our dog. And so you start to wonder whether or not we have any kind of free will at all. Um you know, various issues were raised about that study in particular. Uh, the twins did have some time uh, sort of hanging out together before they did the quizzes, and there's a sense they might have kind of talked a bit and merged some of their answers inadvertently. Um, there's also the fact that many people in the 1970s and 60s named their kid Jim or their, you know, daughter Linda. <laughs> a uh, lot of yeah. guys like doing woodwork in the garage. Some of these things just feel like coincidences. But then there's the then there's the um twins Otto and Gerhard. I forget what his name is, but they got separated at birth and tell us what happened to them. Yeah, that's another striking case. So um sometimes twins freak us out because they're so similar even though they've been separated. Other times they end up doing very different things, and that raises this distinct anxiety about how our uh, circumstances and environment can influence us a lot. So these two, they grew up uh, together. Their parents got divorced. One of them stayed in, I think it was Jamaica, maybe misremembering, um, with the Jewish father and became a kind of progressive uh, Jew. And then the other one went to Austria and became a Nazi. He was a member of like the Hitler Youth Movement, um, was raised as a Christian. Uh, So these are identical twins. One ends up being Jewish and the other is a Nazi. It's kind of a shocking, it's really a shocking example of how your your, um, family background and your environment can fundamentally affect your values. So do your parents have, are there any other children besides you and Julia or were you quite enough? We were enough. We were also surprised. They knew they were having one kid. They did not know they were having twins till we came out. It was the 1970s, no scans. So, bam, suddenly there's two. So, at that point, they were like, we're done. <laughs> we're done. <laughs> it's just the two of us. They seem like they had a, a, a great sense of humor. You don't talk very much about your parents in the book. But what do you think being twins taught them? Gosh, that's a great question. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I haven't been asked that before. Um, I should probably have asked them. Um, I do think they were really good parents of twins. So this is sort of diverting from that question. But they did a great job of allowing us to be different in certain ways and also very similar in certain ways. We didn't feel that they were somehow interfering with or directing us, uh, telling us we were too close um, or that we needed to be, uh, I don't know, more similar. They didn't dress us in the same clothes, but they didn't mind if we did similar things. So I have nothing but praise for the way they were as twin parents, uh, frankly. And my mother sometimes says that she just really loved watching us, especially when we were very little, growing up next to each other. We were so close um, and she just felt constantly moved by seeing, you know, this this, this touching instance of um, small humans cooperating and loving each other in that way. Uh, so I think it expanded her sense of of what it was like to be super close to mm-hmm. a sibling. I want to thank you very, very much. It was a, a wonderful book, and I very much enjoyed talking with you. My guest today has been Wellesley College professor Helena DeBrace. I want to thank Maddie Dunn for his tech work on the show. How to Be Multiple was recently, and I mean really recently, published by Bloomsbury. This is Ira Wood with the lowdown on the weird way the world looks at twins one interview at a time. Bye for now. Mm-hmm. 